Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. You're here. How many people um, are a tad tired today? If you see another tree anytime in the next decade, it's going to be too soon. Um, so glad you're with us. I mean, just to echo what Chris said, uh, I mean, if we're losing power and cleaning up trees, we were incredibly fortunate, though there are people in our church that have um, lost a lot, uh, family members who've lost a lot. I'm thinking of uh, Will and Lena. He's a part of our directional team. Her uh, parents lost their home. And so, so many people south of us, obviously, were not as fortunate. And so what I want to do is, I know you, you've been standing a lot, but you'll be fine. Uh, you've been in your house eating all kinds of crap last couple, so extra cardio is going to be good for you. So would you stand up real quick? And I want to just pray um, for a lot of those people south of us specifically, um, many who it's really personal to you. And then I'm going to talk about a series we have coming up and, and some of the ways we're going to help in about 50 seconds. So would you guys just pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much that we've even looked at this throughout this series, that you're a God that invites us to come to you personally. And that's crazy. And that you hear us and that you know us and that you are not surprised by anything. And Lord, while we in some ways celebrate um, the fortune of so many of us in this room, part of our church community and surrounding community and city, uh, we also recognize the devastation and the hurt and the heartbreak of so many others. And so I just pray that, Lord, we would have empathy um, and we would, Lord, just be willing to ask what we can do to help. And we would come alongside of those, even in our gathering, who've been impacted and family members who've been impacted. And thank you how even over these last couple of days, we have watched the church be the church. And honestly, that's our prayer. I pray that you would move um, in the coming days throughout this region for the church to rep Jesus well, to be extraordinarily generous, to come alongside of people. And I pray that in situations we can't understand that you would give peace that you would give just a sense of the fact that you are with them and in control. And I pray for maybe some that haven't looked up the prey in a long time. This would be the moment where you get their attention and they would move in the direction of you and that you would somehow, even through this, work good for the result of us and ultimately for your glory. And so God, just do your thing and help us in the days ahead to just do what you've called us to do for those in need. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. In two weeks, um, I'm starting a brand new series called For the City, and we changed the name this year, but this is actually the, the thing that we get most excited about as a church every year. Uh, in the past, we just called it Generosity Campaign. And Bradley just talked about like what we do every single month toward partner organizations that we serve with and we give money to all year long. But this is our big yearly focus where we give tens of thousands of dollars away. Every dollar goes into the community around um, vetted organizations that we work with around food scarcity and homelessness and women's crisis. And now this year, as a result of what's happening, a huge part this is going to go toward hurricane relief. We're partnering with an organization called Convoy of Hope um, that is absolutely incredible. They're already on the ground, and I've been in contact with them. And we're a part of a church network called Irresistible Church Network. We have a partner church that's down right in the heart of all of this. So there's going to be, I've been in touch with a bunch of churches that are part of that network. There's a lot that we're going to be able to do to help. But in two weeks, we start that series. And we always frame it around giving, serving, loving. Um, last year, and I talk about this a lot, we gave away more um, as a nonprofit than any other uh, nonprofit in the greater Brandon area, which just says so much about you guys. So this is our chance. Again, we're gonna let you know how you can do that. And then we're just asking that we would come strong. And this is our chance to unleash a wave of generosity in our community. And here's the thing I'll tell you, this is the best series of the year to invite. And I don't overstate that. Because for so many people, they've known what the church is 
is against. They don't know what the church is for. And unbridled, no strings attached generosity is one of the most powerful things we can go, do to go, that's what Jesus is about. That's what the church is actually about. And so that's what we're going to do during this series. Our big giving Sunday is October 23rd. You can begin to go and give now toward relief on our site or app. But man, just come ready, pray, and we're going to have an impact in the city and community again this year in a massive way. And I can't, I can't wait for it. So come, invite, and let's go. Let's be the church in our city and our neighborhood. Um, with that, we're, it's kind of appropriate. We're in part four of this series, Big Church. And what I just talked about, that whole idea of a lot of people know what the church is against, not for, that was a conversation that uh, my wife and I had before we were married. It was our third date at Applebee's because they had no money. And I was three weeks away from uh, being a part of helping launch Centerpoint, launching Centerpoint Church. And she grew up in like a, a vocational ministry home. Um, I grew up a pastor's kid. We understood the same language. But I remember we were in a conversation and she was like, I love Jesus, but I don't really, I don't really love the church. And I was like, well, that could be a problem because um, I'm, I'm a pastor. So we should maybe just end it right here. But we continue to have a conversation. And the thing is, I totally got where she was coming from because I felt some of the same angst. In fact, we talked about in the series, for some of you, unfortunately, like your connection with the church has been like horrible stories of abuse and getting kicked out because of a divorce, having questions just pushed aside, um, elevating certain sins among others, hypocrisy, a church movement that became more the arm of a political party than it did the Jesus movement, judgmentalism. I mean, on and on it goes, man. Or just walking away and thinking, the whole thing is just irrelevant. I get it. And that's, that's where my wife was at. And I, I looked across the table at her and I said, I, I get that. But here's the thing. I don't think the local church has ever captured your imagination which is big language. But if you read the book of Acts, which is what we're tracking through in this series, the local church in the first century captured the imagination of cities and neighborhoods, and they didn't believe what they believed. In fact, they thought the Christians were crazy, but they were like, there is something legit about these people. And so my goal in this series, with all of that baggage that at some level I get, probably more than you think I do, is that we would rethink and we would redefine not what you've thought and felt about the church, but what actually Jesus launched in the first century. And you look at the book of Acts, which is just stands for Acts of the Apostles. It's the 30-year history after the church launched this movement to the world. The question you have to ask that we've looked a little bit at is, how in the world did this thing survive, man? Like, how in the world did it get out of the first century? 2,000 years later, if you were to look at what was happening, happening historically, how does a third of the world somehow associate Jesus, a carpenter out of Nazareth who built the equivalent of Ikea furniture? How do people see him as a savior and Lord? How does it survive the, um, the fall of, the, of Jerusalem in AD 70 where the temple was destroyed? You know, ancient Judaism was brought to its knees. How in the world did it move past that? How did it get past Roman oppression? I mean, how in the world did it ever get out of the first century? And secular historians try to answer that question. And if you read their work, you inevitably get to the end to go, there's got to be more to it than that. In fact, many secular historians would say there's, there's got to be more to it than that. We just haven't figured it out yet. And the church or Jesus followers believe there is more to it than that. That Jesus did something in history. He rose from the dead. About two months later, the new Jesus movement, they rolled into the streets of Jerusalem among the same people who crucified Jesus and started to proclaim that Jesus has done something unique. He rose from the dead and the movement that Jesus predicted launched in the church from the beginning was a movement. It was not a hierarchy. It was not ritualistic. It was not complicated. It was not many of the things that it wasn't exclusive. It was a movement for all people for the world. And they poured into Jerusalem and 3,000 people on opening day placed their faith and trust in Jesus, were baptized, and the movement began to move. And several weeks later, 5,000 people placed their faith and trust in Jesus, were baptized. In fact, more than 5,000. And the movement began to explode. 10% of Jerusalem within days became followers of Jesus. What Jesus predicted began to happen. And it was so interesting. It wasn't a Jewish movement. It wasn't nation specific. It wasn't socioeconomic specific. Didn't matter what your religious background was. It was multicultural. It was multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-generational. It was a movement for all people, and the church exploded. And it was very different than what many of us have experienced. 
And what we looked at last week is when that happened, though, it threatened the balance of power between Rome, who was the occupier, and the Jewish religious authorities. And so part of the religious authorities got jealous, and, and this movement threatened Roman occupation, and anything that threatened Rome had to be basically squelched. And so they arrested Peter and John, put them in prison. Eventually, they flogged them, permanently disfigured, tortured them. And Peter and John get out of prison, and they're like, we wouldn't choose that, but we can't shut up about Jesus, and we can't shut up about the resurrection. And if your leader came back from the dead, you wouldn't be able to shut up either. And they moved back into the streets of Jerusalem after being whipped almost to death, and they continued to proclaim this. And the message just kept moving. And then, maybe you know the story in Acts, Stephen became the first martyr of the church as it was launched and birthed. And so interesting that what they thought would be the means to stop the movement actually caused the movement to spread and scatter even quicker and faster and more powerfully, which has always been the, the case with the church. When the church is at the bottom of society, that's a great place to be. When it has no political influence, it's primed for something. When it has no money and no platform and it's marginalized, that's when the church is at its best. You give the church power, it goes backwards fast. And Stephen is martyred and the church begins to explode. And you know who was overseeing the death? A guy by the name of Paul. And Paul became a highly educated Pharisee religious leader. It was his number one goal to stop what was known as the way at that point. It wasn't even called Christianity. It was just known as the way in the first century. He was going to end it. And he actually thought that was the thing that was going to be most pleasing to God. Three years in, the greatest enemy to this new movement becomes a part of this new movement. And Paul becomes the greatest church planner in all of history and he takes the message outside of Palestine and he begins to plant little ecclesias, the Greek for church, movement, gathering, assembly all over the Mediterranean rim. And Paul's message was so simple. Jesus is the fulfillment of all religion. You can stop looking. That Jesus is the answer to what do I do with my past? How do I have peace with God? How in the world, what I, knowing what I know about myself, how could I ever have forgiveness? And Paul's message was all of it has been answered through Jesus. God has done something and it's a simple message. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he did something in history to make it an intellectual faith. It was not just have belief. It was have belief that Jesus did something in history among eyewitnesses. He rose from the dead. And the moment he did that, game over. It authenticated his message. It is a message. It's a movement to the world. And Paul became a part of that. I mean, I think it's ironic that the greatest enemy to the church, Jesus is like, well, I'm going to take him. I'm going to transform him into the greatest church planner of all time because I needed a type A leader. And he begins to cause the movement to move forward because Jesus made a promise. Nobody's going to get in the way of it. Not Paul, not the Crusades, not the Inquisitions, not the idiot Christians that maybe you've come in contact with. I'm going to build my church and the gates of death and hell are not going to be able to stop it. But while all of that was going on, and that leads us to what I want to talk about today, th there was this tension that started to arise in Jerusalem. Like all of this movement and energy and power is happening, and it's just exploding everywhere. And yet there's this tension or controversy that begins to arise, and, and this, is, this is so relevant to us, more than maybe you'll even imagine initially. But th this is the controversy that it's different context, different application 2,000 years later. But this is the reason that many of you walked away from the church for a while. This is the reason that even now some of you are kind of trying it out, but you're in a place where you want a connection with God. You're not sure you want a connection with the church. I'm telling you, all of that, for a lot of you, arose from this controversy and this tension almost at the very beginning of the church movement, and we've wrestled with it ever since then. If we would go back to what we're going to talk about today, that the initial followers of Jesus could not have been clearer, but it's messy and it's gray, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. But if we would do what they did, the church would be much better off in culture. And so this controversy arises, and I'm, I'm just going to put it at street level. It's you know, more complicated than this. But basically the question was, who's allowed to be a part of the church? Who's allowed to be a part of this new movement, gathering assembly? Like, what do you have to do? What do you have to change? What has to be different for you to be able to be a part of this? And the Jews are like, well, you have to, you have to become Jewish and you have to adopt our lifestyle and our rules and our way of life. And as soon as you, that's all you gotta do. As soon as you do that, you're in. 
And then the Gentiles, who is most, everybody else, is completely confused because like, well, that's not what Paul said. Paul's like, it's by grace, God's undeserved favor through faith in what Jesus did, rose from the dead in history, and it validated all of his teachings, and, and that was it, and we're in. And now you're coming along saying, we actually have to become Jewish, jump through a million hoops, we don't even understand your culture, and we have to do that before we can even be a part of the church? Are you kidding? And I'm just telling you, different application. This is what many of you experience, and this is why some of you have resisted the church for so long. Because even though it's different 2,000 years later, we still wrestle with this. We still, we still struggle with this. Now, to be fair, you can kind of get the tension or the angst, right? Especially if you kind of grew up in the deal. Because there is a, there's a moral imperative, there's a demand, and there is a cost to following Jesus. And if you study the New Testament, it, it's so clear because a lot of times the way we view this is, is so different. It's not so that Jesus can steal our joy. It's so that Jesus can actually lead us to the path of joy, contentment, and fulfillment and lead our lives to sync up with the rhythm of our soul, with how he's created us. In fact, to quote a mentor of mine, you follow Jesus, it'll make your life better and it'll make you better at life because Jesus is smarter than you. Jesus is smarter than me. And so he's like, listen, this is not to steal something. I want to give you life. I want you to follow me. So there is a demand and there's a cost to that. But it, it takes a lifetime to journey and to move into that transformation to follow Jesus. And so you can get kind of this collision of, yeah, there is a cost. There is a standard. There is a moral imperative to following Jesus. So how do I reconcile all that? And here's generally what happens in the church world. It's happened on and off for 2,000 years. The grace of the gospel Gospel, good news of Jesus, everything he did, grace, undeserved favor. The grace of the gospel collides with the truth of the gospel. And somehow they're pitted as mutually exclusive. And the moment you do that, it becomes really weird in the church. And you build walls really fast. And all of a sudden, all kinds of barriers are erected. And it becomes inconsistent and crazy and just, just off the rails. And then... You look at the life of Jesus. And by the way, the church is the physical representation of Jesus on planet earth. That we were supposed to be, we don't do a good job a lot of times, we were supposed to be the closest thing that people are gonna get as we gather together and become the church. The closest thing people are gonna get to seeing Jesus this side of heaven was supposed to be the church. And if you look at Jesus' life, if you study Jesus' life, Jesus was grace and truth personified. He was not the balance of grace and truth, which is what the church loves to talk. We gotta, we gotta be the balance. We gotta balance. No, not Jesus. Jesus brought all grace and all truth all the time. And it wasn't mutually exclusive and it wasn't balanced. It was just, I'm bringing the full measure of truth and I'm bringing the full measure of grace everywhere I go. And that's what I want the church to do. And when the church understands that, when we stay on mission with that, we're not the balance of anything. And it's not, clean your crap up and come, get your junk together and come, nor is it throw away the cost or the demand of following Jesus. It's the church that's willing to step into the middle of that mess that's on message with what Jesus designed and dreamed for the church to be. So this is, this is the account of that tension and that controversy that arose back in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. This is basically the first church business meeting. Anybody grow up in a church where they have business meetings? They're horrible. <clears throat> we don't have them. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, that was the capital, to Antioch. And it's interesting. Antioch is actually the place where Christians were called Christians for the first time. And it was actually a derogatory term. And we were like, oh, we like it. So we just kept it. And so in Antioch, um, they were teaching the brothers, and they said this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. You can't be a part of the church. Now, just to explain this thoroughly, circumcision is the process. I think you guys know that. I, I think you guys got that. <clears throat> I, I think you're good. Unless, unless you're circumcised... By the custom talk, you can't be saved. And everybody who's listening to this is like, what? What? They're like, yeah, yeah. Unless you have a little surgery, you can't be a part of the church. You can't be a part of the Jesus thing. You, you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta fully embrace all of our customs and ceremony rituals and all that, which means, 
whatever their version of next steps was, new members class, it was all women and children all the time, right? So to put this in our terms, again, I'm going to oversimplify, but basically, hey, you have to join the Moses Club before you join the Jesus Club. You got to go back into the Old Testament covenant and the Old Testament rituals and laws and all of the stuff that they lived under. And you've got to adopt all of those, live by all of those, and then you can embrace the Jesus thing. And so, verse 2, this brought Paul, who was the one all along going, no, it's a simple message. And you're like, well, that's not what these guys are saying. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem where this whole controversy started and to see the apostles. So the guys like Matthew and John and Peter and all those who are a part of this thing and the elders about this question. And basically when they get there, they're like, hey guys, you're screwing it up. It was simple. It's about this message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're trying to take us back in his old covenant, old system, and have these people adopt stuff that they don't even know about in order to become a part of the Jesus thing. That's not what Jesus intended. And so, verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. And if you were here in week one, that's our word in the Greek, ekklesia, movement, gathering, assembly. And the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. And so I love this. Basically, Paul shows up to go, hey, guys, can I just interrupt your meeting for a second while you're debating whether the Gentiles can be saved? It's already happening. So, I mean, while you discuss all of this and argue back and forth, the Gentiles are literally receiving the Holy Spirit as I speak. Like, they're already trusting Jesus as I speak. So you can debate this all you want. It's already happening. Like, this is what we said last week. If God decides to do something, you can't stop it even if you don't like it. And the church is notorious for that. We're getting into little meetings, debating whether God can do something or not while he's doing it. Paul's like, it's already happening. You don't need to debate it any longer. So verse five, then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and so this is the, this is the religious leaders. And many of these religious leaders actually began to believe and place their faith and trust in Jesus. But as you can expect or imagine, they struggled, man. They struggled with, like, how do they not have to act like us to become like us? Why don't they have to follow the 613 laws? Why, why, don't, why don't they have to adhere to the 10 commandments? Why is this not a thing? Because we grew up in this Old Testament covenant. This is all we've known. And so it was a, it's a difficult tension. And so end of verse five, they stood up, these Pharisees who had embraced Jesus and said, hey, let's just, let's just end the controversy. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, this isn't 10 commandments. I mean, you don't even live up to 10 commandments, nor do I. This is 613 laws. This is all of their oral tradition, which by the way, I mean, it was tradition. A lot of it was made up. They're like, you have to adopt all of it. You have to adhere to all of it. And then as soon as you do, just 613 laws, then you're in. And basically, Paul, you need to teach these Gentiles who are converting. They have to adopt their, the entire lifestyle, meet all of the law first, and then we'll welcome them in. And listen, we read that because sometimes we fail to contextualize. We're like, that's ridiculous, crazy. Those people were insane. Yet 2,000 years later, I'm telling you, this, if you've been around the church long enough, this happens all the time. And we have different rules, and, and it's a different context, but so often the, the invitation still moves to this, as soon as you get your junk together, you can come. This is why I define welcoming accessible, one of our core values all the time, is not just, we'll save you a seat, because that's generally when the church says, oh, it's welcome to everybody, it means, hey, we'll let you sit somewhere, Welcoming accessible means not just that you have a seat, you have a part to play. Because the church is the vehicle for moving people to a place to follow Jesus with all of their hearts. And it's so easy for that invitation to get so screwed up. And I don't want to go, because I rail on this all the time, but it's just true. And I just want to say what some of you have thought. <clears throat> You've been a part of a church, excuse me, maybe growing up, where when, when you start to fall into this kind of thinking, I mean, it gets weird quick without even realizing it. And it's all subjective. 
where depending on your denomination, area of the country, or generation, the rules always change. And it completely gets off the rails from what Jesus intended. And generally, again, not to make a caricature of it, but it's true. We elevate sex above everything else. Self-righteous doesn't even make the list. So if you're in some kind of sexual issue, sexual orientation, sexual sin, whatever, we'll be all about that. But you can be a deacon and treat people like crap. Nobody will even notice, right? Or will, you know, you you might get kicked out of certain denominations because you drink too much. They'll laugh on stage if you eat too much. And Paul, I think, would come along to go, I don't know if you read it. I just lumped all of those in the same category. All of you need a savior. All of you are are at a different starting gate. And to create an invitation of change and then join us is literally an enemy of what Jesus came to launch in the first century. And so the apostles, verse 6, and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, this is such a big moment, Peter got up and addressed them and said, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from the lips, my lips, the message of the gospel and believe. I mean, guys, God already decided. In fact, Paul went to a guy by the name of Cornelius, who's the first Gentile convert, and everybody was up in arms around it. And he basically began to proclaim, hey, this is a message for all people. And it's not change and join us, it's join us. And over a period of time, whether that's four months or 40 years, God has the power to change you. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them that you might hear from my lips the gospel and believe. And then verse eight, this is such a big verse. God, this camp ones for one second, who knows the heart? Do you believe that? Like, do we believe that? Because I don't know your heart. I just know what you act like. I don't know your heart. I know what you prioritize. I don't know your heart. I know what you say sometimes. I don't know your heart. I just know some of the stuff that I view in terms of outward behavioral modification. I, I don't, you don't know anybody's heart. But God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And then verse nine, he, God, this is such a big line, made no distinction between us and they're like, us good Jewish believers, we grew up in it. We memorized the Torah in Jewish Sunday school. We know all the stories. We could recite the verses. We've learned the lines to all of the latest worship songs. Like we, we, God made no distinction between us and the Gentiles who have all kinds of crazy behavioral habits and they don't know any of this, God tore away all the dividing walls and put all of us in an equal plane. And then he says this, no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. And they're like, well, I know he purified their hearts, but their behavior is crazy. They have crazy Gentile habits. Now then, verse 10. Why, it's such a big language. Why do you keep testing God? Why do you test God by putting on the necks of the disciples, Gentile converts, a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? A yoke literally means like a way of life, a, a lifestyle. And let me just give you, this is really deep theology. I'm gonna give it to you in 40 seconds. The scripture is really clear about the whole purpose of the Old Covenant, Old Testament system, the temple, the sacrificial system, the laws, the commandments, everything that God had put in place. It was inspired, it was initiated by God, but it had an expiration date. All of it was to point to a coming savior. And when Jesus showed up, it was the fulfillment of all of that and everything changed that came before it. In fact, here's what the scripture says, don't miss this that all the Old Testament laws, all the Old Testament commandments had one purpose, to show you how badly you fail at meeting the standard of perfection. It's like, hey, every day you gotta bring a sacrifice, you don't meet the standard, do you? All the 10 commandments, you suck at those, don't you? All the stuff in the Old Testament, Old Covenant system, all of it was to be a mirror of, you're not perfect, you don't measure up, you can't meet the standard, you need help. 
enter Jesus is the standard, is the savior, is the rescuer that you need. And so in this moment, they're going, why would you lead people back into a system that reminds them of how dysfunctional they are, but it doesn't lead them to any hope and it doesn't lead them to a savior? That had a purpose in a moment in time. It was to let the generations know you fail at trying to measure up to the perfection and standard of God and you need a savior and Jesus is here and he has paid the penalty one time for all time and walked out of the grave alive and now you don't need to go back to that system ever again because you have Jesus. You were terrible at meeting that system. Why would you place it on the backs of these people? You can't do it. They can't do it. Luckily, Jesus is here, so knock it off. You were terrible at it, and they will be too. That's not what it was designed for. The Old Testament system could never save. It just indicated you needed a savior. So no, verse 11, we believe it's through the grace, undeserved favor of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, reconciled, redeemed, just, Please don't miss these four words. Just as they are. Because God knows the heart. And God can purify a heart long before he purifies anybody's behavior. And in fact, hear me, church. God can purify a heart two decades before any of the behavior catches up. In fact, the way I would describe it is there is a pace to grace. And it doesn't always work at your pace. And you don't always know the heart of another individual. And you don't always know what the spirit of God is doing in some other individual's life. And we cannot accurately judge progress. And out of a heightened need for control in the church so often, we want to say it's welcoming, accessible to everybody. And then the moment you come, we put you on a six-month how to clean up your life plan. And we completely bypass the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and in their heart. Sometimes you look at an individual and you're like, that needs to change. And generally, just come on. Generally, those issues have to do with the fact of you're really strong in that area. That's easy for you. And you just tend to ignore all the other stuff you're not good at. But you judge everybody else by the things that you just think should be easy for them. And you look at somebody, well, that needs to change. That thing might be 27th on a list of what the Spirit of God is doing in their life. And you don't know where they started. And you don't know where they're going. And you don't know what the starting block is for them. And that might be still 28 years down the road till the Spirit of God works in their heart. And God has already done the process of purifying their heart. And he's in the process of changing and purifying their behavior. But the moment you try to to be the judge and jury and play Holy Spirit. You move to this place where it is grace colliding with truth rather than grace in truth. You don't measure up. You are a mess. Jesus' grace is abundant. And at the end of the service, James stands up. James, the brother of Jesus. I mean, I've said this so many times, but if you're new, this is, it's maybe the greatest apologetic to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, that his brother James thought that he was crazy and then somehow switched his opinion and thought his brother was his Lord and Savior. What would it take for your brother or sister to convince you that they were the son of God? And you got to imagine, you know this happened, where they would get with, hey, James, for real though, when he was 10, and yet James believed that his brother was exactly who he said he was. And here, this is such a dramatic moment. James stands up in the meeting. And this verse has guided everything we've done as a church from, from the very beginning. This verse, I come back to over and over again. This verse is so defining, even in terms of our mission as a church, to create a church that tears away every unnecessary barrier for people to find life and freedom in Jesus. It came right here. 
Here's what James says. It is my judgment. I, I Listen, I don't get it, guys. Yeah, there's a lot of tension. I'm not sure what to do. Some of these areas are gray. It's, it's really messy. I, I, I'm not sure about it. But James is like, here's what I do know. Let me just tell you what I know. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Amen. Process, time, patience, not on your timeline. Hey guys, I know it's messy. I know it's crazy. I don't get, I grew up Jewish too. I've got all these things. It's it just, the whole thing is, it blowing my mind. But here's what I tell you that I know James would say, we don't do anything else. Let's not make it difficult for all of these people who are hungering to answer the question of their soul. Do not make it difficult for people who are trying to turn to God. Stop putting up unnecessary, complicated barriers. Stop putting up hoops to jump through. Stop adding to this list. This is about who's not here yet, not just who's here. This is about all the people who don't have it together yet, but are in the pro process of turning to God. Do not make it difficult for them. The church should make it as easy as possible for anybody. The only barrier that should get in the way is people's own choice to say no to Jesus because Jesus moved, removed every other barrier other than our decision to say yes to him. That should be the posture in the methodology of the local church. Don't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. Got it. Sexual immorality, got it, that's a good one. From the meat strangled, um, animals from the blood, got it, doesn't mean anything to us. All right, fourth one, that's it. No, 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 there's gotta be a, there's gotta be a fourth one and a 600th one. Nope, just, here's what I'm gonna do. And, and basically they could be summarized like this. Be sensitive to the Jews culturally, and this is just for a moment in time, it's not forever, because we don't even understand most of that. Be sensitive to the Jews, abstain from sexual immorality because Jesus was way ahead on this. And in fact, most of the West has adopted Jesus' teachings, whether they know it or not, around sexuality in large part. I, sec, avoid sexual immorality because that's not gonna go well for you and just be sensitive to the Jews. Go. In fact, all of that is under the banner of my greatest commandment. I want you to love God by loving other people around you. One of the ways that you can do that is just be sensitive to their cultural kind of idiosyncrasies and avoid sexual immorality. Go. Well, they lie all the time. We'll worry about that later. I'm just giving you three things. Go. Don't make it difficult. Don't make it complicated for the people who are turning to God. In verse 21, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest of times and is read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. And so verse 30, the men were sent off. Can you imagine how jolting that was for Jewish individuals, Christians that grew up with the Old Testament covenant? sent off and they went to Antioch and they were gathered uh, and there they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. You can only imagine what that was like, all the men in the room like, circumcision, no circumcision, what are they gonna say? <laughs> and they get back and deliver the message and verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And the church avoids its first big split because of pitting the moral imperatives or the cost of following Jesus with the grace of Jesus, rather than looking at Jesus. All grace, all truth, all the time. And the context and the application is different, but I cannot stress this enough, I said this week one. The gravitational pull of every local church is to move inward and to go back to what we know and to create rules because they're safe and because we can control and we like the safety of that and to not wade into the mess and to be uncomfortable with the gray and to move away from people who are not like us. And if we do move in their direction, we give them a, here's the clean yourself up and come plan. Jesus never did that. And so here's the three things I wanna, I wanna give you as we get ready to close. This is the drift that as a follower of Jesus, specifically, if you if you consider me your pastor, what I wanna to say to us as a church, that we, this is the drift that we have to avoid. There's three things. We have to avoid the drift toward insiders and away from outsiders. And I don't mean that as a derogatory term, outsider. That's actually a term used in the New Testament. I just, people on the outside, like all of us have been, like many of my friends are like, I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if this is legit. But I'm telling you, within a couple of years, the gravitational pull of every local church is just about the insiders. One of the things, and I don't, 
please hear my heart. I don't mean to be critical by this. One of the things that drove me crazy over the last couple of years with all of the, the societal and cultural chaos, the pandemic and all the stuff that happened, it disrupted everything. Obviously, industry, church, everything was disrupted. Everything changed culturally. One of the things that drove me crazy is watching churches and pastors hyper-obsessed with what do all the insiders think? What do we need to do for the insiders? How do we make all the Christians happy? What? What about the thousands of people in our neighbors, our cities, our communities, who's watching the church and we have the chance to be a testimony during the season? What about those people? Like, here's the reality. People who have left the church culturally, especially in the West, they don't ever call up the church to complain. They just leave. There, there's a whole generation of 20-somethings. If you look at the statistics, they're gone. The church isn't even reaching them in large part, which is why we lean so heavy in the next generation. We have got to constantly be focused on those who are outside, not just those who are inside. I'm glad you have your seat every week. I'm glad you know the song. I'm glad you grew up in this. I'm, I'm glad that you understand all the theology. That's a gift. That's amazing. It's not about you. It's not about me. This is a message where our Savior gave up everything. And no matter what it does to us, because our main goal is not how big we get, we constantly want to make followers of Jesus uncomfortable in the right way because this is a message and a movement for the city and for the world. And the moment you get comfortable with your deal, it becomes all about insiders and we forget about everybody who's not here. And they're asking the question, how do I find peace with God? How do I get forgiveness for my sin? How do I continue to, to function with my past? And we believe that all of those answers are found in Jesus. We have to be bold. When was the last time you uttered the name of Jesus outside of this context? When was the last time you invited somebody? When was the last time that you, you actually moved into kind of an uneasy conversation to let somebody know? who you are and what you're about and carry the name of Jesus. Come on. Well, we cannot just move to insiders and away from outsiders. The second thing is we have to avoid the drift toward law and away from grace. And I don't mean theologically. I mean, that, that's, you know, that could be a danger, but generally it's practically, it's in terms of methodology, where all of a sudden churches, again, because it's safe, it's sterile, we're in control, is they start to create lots of policies and lots of categories as it relates to people. I made a decision we, when we started the church, and it, sometimes it frustrates people, and I get it, I understand it, and they're like, we need clarity on this. We need to know what to do. We need to know, you know what we say when somebody does blah, 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 blah. And over and over, like, there's, I'm sorry, there's no categories and no policies as it relates to people. Because the moment you create a bunch of categories and policies, you don't have to have conversations. And it demeans somebody and it treats them as less than somebody who is made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Jesus never did that. But everybody always wanted to create categories. Hey, Matthew, follow me. Tax collector category. Hey, Jesus, what's the policy? Because Matthew hasn't even decided to stop tax collecting. No, just follow me. You can follow before you even believe because if you follow me long enough, I have the ability to change everything. No more categories, no more policies. Women, woman caught in adultery. I love that story. And basically all these people around ready to stone her and Jesus says to them, hey, go stone yourself if you've never sinned, my paraphrase. And then he says to this woman, I don't, took you guys a minute, I don't condemn you. Now, leave your life of sin. Don't do this anymore. Stop. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, she might not stop. How you know she's gonna stop? Shh, shut up. Categories, policies. Leave your life of sin. Zacchaeus, tax collector, category. What's the policy? No categories, no policies. When you really embrace what Jesus was about, I think, wading into the messiness, you have the ability to experience uncompromised truth and full-on grace and move at the pace of grace that says it is progress, not at your pace. Really, it's progress at the pace of the Spirit of God in your life. And our goal is not, what is God going to do in your heart and life in four months? The goal is, what is God going to do in your life in 40 years? And invite everybody in and be okay with the messiness and the uncomfortableness. And you didn't grow up that way. And my Sunday school teacher, I get all that. Don't move toward law and away from grace. And then the third thing, 
We can't drift toward preserving rather than advancing. Many of you, you, you maybe started a business and isn't it crazy, man, how, how much you're willing to sacrifice early on because you don't have anything to lose. And the same is true as a church, man. And we get, you, you, know, you, you know, we started with like 25 people, 30 people and you can get to a place where it, you become so risk averse and you end up trying to preserve rather than advancing mission. And what happens when you do that, sometimes churches find themselves communicating to a culture that died three decades ago. You have to risk, you have to fail, you have to do things that are gonna make people uncomfortable. Sometimes people are gonna leave, that's okay. We have not been called to huddle up and play it safe. That's why one of our values is dream big, bold faith, risk takers. Let's not preserve at the expense of advancing the mission of God in our generation, in our community, in our city. And then these three commitments, and I'm going to be done as a result of avoiding that drift. Let's be bold. Let's be welcoming, accessible to everybody. My definition is not just we save you a seat, you can play a part. And we're going to wade into that messiness and we're going to allow grace and truth to be on display. The truth of you're a mess. Jesus has come with all of his grace, has the power to change you. Let's be that kind of church. It's unique. I'm telling you, it's different. You guys are doing something different in this city, but we need to be bold. You should be inviting people, having conversations, moving into the messiness of that, serving. Get your hands dirty, man. Second thing is let's always err on the side of grace. That's our commitment. I don't even think that's theologically accurate, but just go with it. If we're gonna err anyway, Anywhere, let's err on the side of grace. If we're not sure, it's like, I'm, not, I'm gonna err on the side of grace. And here's the thing that I would say if that, there's a little bit of pushback with you, and I don't know, listen, that's not letting go of truth. The truth is, this is the reality. And sometimes truth demands, I need to have a hard conversation with somebody in relationship that I'm in community with to go, I, I think you're off the rails, man, and Jesus wants more for your life. But listen, truth is, we need a savior. We don't have it together. Jesus has brought the full measure of his grace. But here's what I'd say to you in terms of erring on the side of grace. Are you glad God erred on the side of grace with you? Are you glad when you hadn't changed a thing? How quickly we forget, man. You're a mess. Embrace Jesus. Things start to change. And then we so quickly like, no, no, no. You need to, you need to get that settled, man. You need to clean that crap up. No, God erred on the side of grace with you. When you hadn't changed anything, when you were a mess, he heard your prayer. He heard your cry. He intervened when you were looking at a bottle of pills, when you were off the rails with that relationship, where you were living your life figuratively, giving him the finger, wanted nothing to do with him, and he gave you way more time than you deserve. Let's err on the side of grace because that's what God did for you. That's the kind of church we should be in our city and in our community. And then lastly, let's remain open-handed. We have an opportunity even over the next couple of weeks as we give, as we serve with our partners, as we help those around us through our partners, we have the opportunity to, to be incredibly generous. Let's be open-handed. It's just driving me crazy. I think God's challenging me in my own life around this, but I, I hate how small we dream sometimes as followers of Jesus. And I'm not talking about your renovated kitchen. I'm talking about being a part of the kingdom of God on earth. It's crazy how this just goes by. It's like we've been invited into this and we get to do something, get to be a part of something that at the end of your life, nobody's gonna care about the car you leased and nobody's gonna ask you about your kids' achievements. I'm sorry to tell you. And nobody's gonna remember the Reno project of 2022. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're gonna care about how you gave your life away for what mattered most. Let's pray in proportion to the God that we serve. Let's dream in proportion to the God that we're following. Let's believe, and I hate that we don't believe this, that God can do extraordinary things through your life as a conduit for his power. That our church, the next decade, we have the chance to do something extraordinary in our city and community. If we may remain focused on avoiding these drifts and focusing our attention on you, do you believe any of that? Let's live open-handed like last story I remember about several years in where I just felt like God was calling. It wasn't just me. It was in a wisdom of a multitude of counselors, a quote proverb that I felt like we needed to take a massive risk as a church. And it was, I'm going to give you details. It was a massive risk. And I just remember saying to my wife, like, I, this might blow the whole thing up. 
but I would rather go down risking everything in proportion to who I know God is, is and who he's called us to than living my faith journey and my leadership journey as a pastor and just playing it safe. Let's not live this next season hunkering down and preserving rather than advancing the mission that God's given us because James was right. Do not. I don't have all the answers. I don't know. Yes, there's things to consider. I don't understand that. That's a little bit of a gray area. But James said, here's what I know. If you forget everything else, do not make it difficult for people in our city who are turning to God. And if we don't, God might do immeasurably more than we could even think, imagine, pray, or dream through this movement of people because his power and his dream for the local church did not die at Pentecost. It is still alive and well. So all over this room, would you guys stand with me? I'm gonna pray for just that. For the This used to hang in my office. My kid's broken. I need to get another one. Big sign right across from my door. The big number, 60,000. That number has grown, unfortunately, but that was the approximate number within a so many mile radius of unchurched, unreached, de-churched individual, individuals in our city. That, that drives me. Jesus, I thank you that your word is living and powerful and it's alive. I don't really understand that, but it is. And even in this moment, I feel the weight of what you've called us to, of what we're caught up in. And there is no way that I have any ability to articulate that clear enough or powerfully enough. So do your thing. And I, I thank you for what you're doing in us. I thank you for what you're doing in this church. I thank you for what you're doing in my own heart. And I just pray as I've been praying throughout this whole series, the whole reason we wanted to do this is, is that you would just lift our, our head, lift our vision. And there's so many cool things that you've allowed us to be a part of, but I think we get so tethered to the stuff of this world that's not really gonna matter in a decade. And so I pray for some of us, we, we would be talking about grace and truth. We, we would start to take the truth of what we've been called into and the cost of following Jesus seriously. And we would run after you with all of our heart, that we would be that kind of church. We would actually care for our neighbors who are gonna spend forever somewhere and we've never had a conversation with them. I pray that we care about reaching our community, not just showing up for a service and then going our way and, and living the rest of our lives, that we would, we would be invested. And God, that maybe you would do something in and through us and through our church that would confound our community and city. And the only explanation would be the grace and the power and the truth brought by Jesus. And so God, do your thing. I've done what I can. We pray that you would make this alive through the power of your Holy Spirit and um, apply it to how specifically you want to move in our hearts and how you specifically want to move in this church. As we sing this final song, I pray for those of us who are comfortable would lift our voices should, to just declare and be reminded of how big a message this is and what we are stewards of as the body of Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.